0: Welcome to Afternoons with me, I'm Bill Arnold. It is the afternoon and my name is Bill Arnold, so it fits in perfectly with the show title. I'm always excited to have a conversation with my friend Dr. Greg Heddington and we're going to continue our study in 1st Peter. This will be the second lesson in 1st Peter. Greg, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks, Bill. Well, welcome to Hi. our second lesson in our study of 1st Peter as we look at 1st Peter chapter 1 verses 1 to 12. This letter is ultimately about hope. And we all need hope because life is not always easy. Do you ever get the sense when you look at the news or go through the day that we as Christ followers do not feel at home in this world? In fact, depending on your version of Scripture, in the first verse of the first chapter in 1 Peter, Peter says he's writing this letter to God's elect whom he calls strangers, exiles, and aliens in this world. Now, we don't have to watch movies about aliens because we sometimes feel like we're aliens in this life because the world does not reinforce the way Jesus taught us to live and what to believe, even though our faith is the majority faith in the U.S. and the world. But our media doesn't always uh, encourage believers, uh, to say the least, and even though other religions are rarely criticized, but that is no surprise to us. Because Christ followers have always been considered aliens in this world, all the way back to the first century. After all, Scripture tells us most of this world follows their own rules. and In essence, they've become their own God because they have made up their own religion, and it's under the influence of the evil one. But even though we think things are difficult for Christ followers in the U.S., It is nothing compared to how believers have been persecuted and murdered for what they have believed in the past and experiencing, in fact, right now in many countries of the world. I'll talk more about that in other lessons to come, but today we focus on this letter and the believers during the time that Peter wrote in the first century. So if you're taking notes, hopefully, if you're driving in the car, you're not, but if you have the ability, to take notes, Roman numeral one, the background. We remember that Peter wrote this first letter in the early 60s A.D. The Roman emperor Nero began his reign in 54 A.D. and it lasted until 68 A.D. History tells us that Nero was the first of the emperors who viciously persecuted and murdered believers and that began when apparently he started to lose his mind in the mid 60s. Now when Peter refers to Babylon in chapter 5 verse 13, scholars believe that is code language which refers to Rome, and scholars conclude that Peter wrote his two letters from Rome not long before he was martyred during the reign of Nero sometime between 80 64 in A.D. 67. So he does not mention Rome that could have caused him real problems in his letter. According to the Roman historian Tacitus, it was well known that Nero not only murdered his family members, but also burned believers alive, and not for political reasons, but for his own personal cruelty. Mm. Peter writes his two letters from a Roman prison as he awaits is imminent execution. So there is valid evidence that Nero had already started persecuting and executing believers in Rome by that time. Now, sometimes we tend to feel a little uncomfortable telling others about what we believe. But think of the early believers. Think of believers under Taliban rule today. Do we really have it so tough in the U.S.? Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus the Christ. Now, Peter's more than a disciple. And remember, the word disciple means a follower or learner. Peter is an apostle, which literally means one who is sent out with a message. I may repeat that an apostle is one who is sent out with a message. He's writing to the exiles who have been dispersed throughout the Middle East and Asia. These exiles are also called citizens of heaven through faith in Christ, and that's mentioned in Philippians 3, verse 20. In other words, our true home is ultimately heaven, and these believers yearn for their true home, which they will one day inhabit because it is the inheritance for those who do not conform to the values of this world. Now, in verse 2 of the first chapter, Peter writes, quote, To those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge means that God knew before the foundations of the earth who would choose to belong to him. Peter inserts those words early on in his letter to provide comfort to believers because Peter's primary purpose in writing is to encourage is to give hope to those who are in the midst of suffering to tell them God loves them still. Now, the difficulties which God's people have or will face do not surprise God because God knows everything we experience, of course. And after all, Jesus experienced the life of humans when he lived here just as he knew exactly how we felt and the way we face what we face in the fallen world. Now, here's a short quiz. The Apostle John is called the Apostle of what? The Apostle of love. The Apostle Paul is called the Apostle of what? The Apostle of faith. The Apostle Peter is called the Apostle of what? The Apostle of hope. How about that? Faith, hope, and love. The big three gifts for all believers, and Peter gives his suffering brethren the assurance that their suffering will one day be transformed into glory. And that's an important word in this lesson. Glory is possible only because our Savior suffered for us and then entered into his glory, as Peter says in verse 4. So if you're still taking notes, Roman numeral 2, called to be holy. We have a familiar American expression some people use when they're angry or emotionally hurt to say to somebody, we say, don't get mad, get what? Get even. Mm -hmm. That's, That's pretty deeply embedded in our psyche. But Peter turns this around. He says, when we are hurt by others, and we are pressured to conform to the way most people react to the hurt, don't get mad, get holy. Now, the word holy is often misunderstood to mean someone acting in a superior way towards somebody else, or acting perhaps sinlessly. But that is the opposite of the way scripture defines it, because after all, no one has ever been sinless except Jesus. Holy means to be set apart for sacred use for the Lord. Let me repeat that. Holy means to be set apart for sacred use for the Lord. And Jesus modeled exactly what it means. For instance, Think of the ways Jesus lived his life that was considered unpardonable by the religious Jewish leaders. Jesus had the gall, I'm saying that sarcastically, but Jesus had the gall to care for the sick, the lepers, demon-possessed, the poor, the least, the lost, the lonely, the ones who smelled bad and dressed poorly because they were poor. Jesus showed love to the immoral, the non-religious, the foreigner, oppressed women, ignored children, the helpless, the obscure types that are always forgotten and always on the fringe of every society. And Jesus continues to care for them today as he encourages us to do the very same thing. Well, that kind of love was the real scandal for religious leaders. Jesus just went too far with his love and his inclusiveness for all people, and that made him dangerous to the religious leaders who were not following God's commands to take care of their own people. Instead, the religious leaders added additional laws to make the lives of the people even more miserable. But guess what? The same love and concern Jesus showed to all people is the model of holiness we are to follow. As Archbishop William Temple says, the church, and that's us, remember, don't think of the church as a building, 3548 Main Street. The church is the only institution which exists for the benefit of its non believers. I want to repeat that. The church is the only institution which exists for the benefit of its non believers, excuse me, non members. Now that we know the scriptural definition of what holy means, here is Roman numeral three, three pillars on which we build a holy lifestyle. So Peter mentions these in chapter one. And number one is a permanent salvation. Now, nothing is more encouraging for believers as we struggle with many issues in life than the promise of a salvation that the Lord gives us that he will never leave us, Or forsake us, as Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says. In God's foreknowledge, verse 2, he knew who would choose to follow him in life and what our impact on the world would be for him. Because of his mercy, verse 3, he has saved those who trust him and they are born into a living hope. Salvation is not deserved by anyone, nor can it be earned. As we know from Scripture, we will never be good enough to deserve God's forgiveness. And we will never be bad enough to prevent it. I want to repeat that. I say it a lot, but it's important. We will never be good enough to deserve God's forgiveness. And we will never be bad enough to prevent it. God cannot love us any more or any less than he does right now. And that was proven when Jesus died on the cross. He died just once. To substitute for our sin and his love does not need to be proven again on the cross. So when we repent of our sin, and the Greek word, I've got to always give a little Greek, metanoia, which is the Greek word for repent, it means literally to turn around from what we're doing and go the other way. That's repent. And Jesus has already forgiven us, and now we must forgive ourselves. As Martin Luther said, the Christian faith is a continual repentance. Now, I have a friend who's been a, a reconstructive massage therapist for the past 35 years. And I once asked her, I said, what is the biggest problem you see in the people that come to you for therapy? And they have been coming for years. I figured she'd say, well, it's got to be the neck or the shoulder pain. But she surprised me when she said the biggest problem People have is dealing with, you ready? Unforgiveness. The biggest problem people have is dealing with their own unforgiveness. So the greatest spiritual problem which many believers face is the inability to forgive themselves, and that is contrary to what Scripture says. Mm -hmm. Friends, we will continue to sin as humans. We will never do it perfectly, but we repent and begin again and again to do our best To turn away from lingering sin and turn our will over to the care of the Holy Spirit to work within us. As, As 1 John 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And verse 2 says we then become sanctified, which is another way to say we will be holy. And what does holy mean? To be set apart, for sacred use for the Lord. And it takes the power of the Holy Spirit in us because it's very difficult to resist temptation on our own. Mm -hmm. I mean, as as, uh, Oscar Wilde, the humorist and playwright once said, I can resist anything but temptation. (laughs) He said the only way to be rid of temptation is to yield to it. Okay, that is humorous. But fortunately, Christ followers do have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us fight the battle. And Bill, I think that's the first pillar that we're going to build on today.
0: Uh, let's take a little break. You're listening uh, to Dr. Greg Heddington as we're looking at the first uh, first Peter, chapter one. We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back. So glad to have Dr. Greg Heddington as my guest today. We're talking about First Peter. Awesome book. Hey, Greg, before we move on, can I go back to uh, something you said in the previous segment? Talking sure. about the church uh, being uh, something that is for non-members. Of course, I, my understanding is, of course, the church is uh, Jesus' idea for the gathering of the flock, for the feeding of the sheep, for the training and discipleship. But then we're to go out and make disciples.
1: Absolutely, and that's the whole point.
0: That's okay. It. That's yeah. That's what I just wanted to double check. So there anyway. you got it.
1: You were right. Oh, off. good. Well, Bill, go we're, we're sim- talking about the uh, three pillars of faith in which we build a holy lifestyle. And again, when we use the word holy, we don't mean sinless or superior to someone else. Holy in Scripture means to be set apart for sacred use for the Lord. So before the break, we looked at the first pillar of faith on which we build a holy lifestyle, and it is to know that believers have a salvation, a a promise of a permanent salvation that the Lord gives to his own. And now the second pillar on which we build a holy life is a faith proven through struggle. Now, what do I mean by that, a faith proven through struggle? Well, Peter talks about suffering and regards suffering as a gift. As he says in verse 7, suffering, quote, proves the genuineness of our faith. He alludes to the example of diamonds. How are diamonds made? Well, there are several ways, but one way is when carbon is heated to about 2,000 degrees and then it's put under extreme pressure course if you've read comic books we know that superman can also squeeze a piece of coal so hard that it turns into a diamond but then again he is superman (laughs) now the point that peter is making is in order to become a diamond one has to first go through fire and pressure and our faith is proven to be genuine only after it has gone through those struggles and been tested over time now who likes to suffer? Does anybody like to suffer? I don't like to suffer. Normie. In fact, I feel about bit, Bill, you, I mean. No, hate it. I mean, I feel about suffering about the way I feel about eating okra. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't like it, mm-hmm. but it might be good for you. Yeah, yeah. That's how I feel about suffering. Now, faith in the Lord is rarely instantaneous because, sorry, but it must go through the suffering of life and the testing over time. In fact, I believe that faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. And let me say it again. Faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Another way to say it is don't trust anyone who does not walk with a limp. In other words, as we go through life, we all get wounded. We all walk with a, a metaphorical limp. But when we make it through those trials and pressures, Our faith emerges like gold, and that's exactly the point that Peter's making. And thus, suffering can be a gift. So instead of becoming bitter, we can become better through suffering. The third pillar on which we build a holy lifestyle is we set our hope fully on the grace of God. Now, we discover this truth throughout Scripture And verses 10 and 11 mention the Old Testament prophets who could not see into the future regarding when their prophecies about the arrival of Messiah would be realized. But they did foretell that Messiah would, in some way, it wasn't clear to them, they talked about it, but in some way, the Messiah would suffer greatly before he would eventually be glorified as Savior. And, and this is part of God's grace for us. Now, regarding grace, my favorite word of all in Scripture, one of the most important passages in Scripture to memorize, in my opinion, is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, now let me kind of make a commentary. That's it. We are saved by God's grace. Even though the word grace is only mentioned eight times in the entire Old Testament, it's used 123 times in the New Testament because Jesus completes what the prophets knew incompletely. Think about those prophets for years, prophesying about the Messiah, the Messiah, then the next prophet. Messiah is coming, he's going to suffer, then the next prophet. But it was never realized who it was, what it would be like exactly. So, again, here's the passage of uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, and not because of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, friends, we believe by faith because of the f- grace of God. We cannot earn grace, and that is a happy surprise. In fact, the literal Greek meaning of the word grace means surprise gift so back in verse 9 where he uses the word gift we could substitute we'd say it is the instead of gift it is the grace of god and not because of works lest anyone should boast i mean who would expect expected it grace is a surprise gift it's like someone coming up to you and they give you this gift and it happens to be a wonderful gift you didn't ask for it you did nothing to earn it it's a gift it's a grace and what is grace it's a surprise gift so the third pillar in which we build a holy lifestyle is we set our hope fully on the grace of God, and we know that Peter is the preeminent apostle of hope. Now, I want to close with this. Of the dozens of movies made over the decades about Jesus and his apostles, my all-time favorite is the most recent one called The Chosen. It's earthy, creative, dramatic, excellent acting. You can see it on Amazon Prime, and I, I recommend it. But before The Chosen came out, my favorite movie about Jesus and his apostles was directed by Franco Zeffirelli back in 1977, and it's called Jesus of Nazareth. It made such an impression on me that I recorded it, that I played one particular dialogue over and over until I wrote it down verbatim. And I've used this example before on the show, but it is so profound. And since we're studying a letter from Peter, it helps us to have a deeper insight into this rock of the apostles who had such a dramatic change in his life after the resurrection i think the dialogue is right on because it gives a glimpse of what peter might have acted like before the death and resurrection of jesus so this is what makes it real so here's the setting the setting is nighttime in the wilderness and some of the new apostles of jesus are talking together peter finally realizes what it means for him to follow jesus Peter's tired from a long day of ministry with the others, and he grumbles to Matthew says, I told my wife I'd be back. I told her I'd be back in the spring when the fishing's better. Matthew says, don't lie to her or yourself. Peter says, lie? Matthew, yes, you know very well you'll never go back. Peter, I will. Matthew, no, you won't. Never. You'll never fish again. You'll never get drunk again. You'll never live in Capernaum again. None of us will. <laughs> You'll never be the same again, and never will the lives of everyone in the whole world, because we're the first to know.
0: That is so good. Greg, thank you again, once again, for taking us on this journey through First Peter.
1: All right, buddy. Enjoy it so much.
0: Yeah, me too. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. We will uh, take us for a short break and be right back. day is going well, and I know that whatever it is you're doing today, I hope you're finding purpose and meaning, and you're doing exactly what God has asked you to do, living exactly where you're living, and being planted in a place and serving God in whatever capacity He has you uh, serving Him. Uh, there was a time uh, that we lived in a world that didn't have, uh, like, smartphones and stuff, so we sort of maintained our our place in life in a certain community and we talked to each other and we connected to neighbors and we had a different way of doing life. Now, uh, what's happened in our life now is we've got a lot more options and we spend our time and energy in very different ways. And Scott Hubbard has joined me in studio to talk about an article that he wrote in Desiring God. You can always go to desiringgod.org to check it out. The name of the article is Live Where You Live, Practicing a Lifestyle of Presence. And I think talking about a lifestyle of presence is not only a fascinating topic, but one I think we all should reflect on and think about. Uh, Scott, welcome back to the show.
2: Yeah, it's good to be with, here with you, Bill.
0: I think I described that uh, accurately. I mean, we, according to how you start the article, you do say we, live, we once lived in a world without cars and screens. People had no choice but to live where they lived.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you had maybe a few portals into the the wide, wide world. Yeah, I mean, newspapers have been around for a long time before the before the phone, before the car, before screens. You did still have newspapers, but even those are going to be shaped by the place where you lived. On the on the top of it, it's going to say, you know, uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune, right, or, right. <laughs> or whatever your town name is. Yeah,
0: and I think this will resonate with a lot of listeners. The second line of your article was. If their home was in the northeast part of town, they worked and worshipped in the northeast part of town.
2: Yeah, that's right. Your options were limited. You had to uh, make do with the people and things that were nearby because your your mobility was limited and your awareness of the wider world was significantly more limited, which made the decision about where you're going to live actually not a choice at all. It was already decided for you. You're Mm going to live where you are.
0: But I think that was a time when perhaps you would know dozens of your neighbors and you'd know them by name and you would know their kids' names and the names of their dogs and everything. You would pretty much know a lot, a lot of your neighbors.
2: Yeah, my wife and I just moved into a new home a year ago. And one of the things that we had to force ourselves and try to do is to learn and meet the neighbors on our block, learn the names of them and meet them. And i just thinking now, like, uh, in a different time, that wouldn't be something you would have to try to do. (laughs) It would just be something that you do that happens. But now there are so many ways for us to avoid the very people that we live, you know, 50 feet from, and to get to know the people who live, uh, you know, 5,000 miles away from us.
0: Yeah, I remember my aunt growing up in, in South Minneapolis, and there was... She she said that we there was a key to the house. We didn't know where it was. <laughs> and there would be times yeah. when her friends would stop over.
2: That was South Minneapolis. South Minneapolis, wow.
0: yeah. And her friends would stop over. She wasn't home, and they'd just let themselves in, brew yeah. a pot of coffee, and they'd be sitting around her dining room table talking. And when she got home, she was absolutely delighted they were
2: there. Yeah, amazing. Can you imagine that? Well, that's a different world. <laughs> <laughs> At least for – I live in South Minneapolis, and – we wouldn't dream to do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but people would also be yeah. on their front porch at night. Yeah, just exactly. As they didn't necessarily have air conditioning, and there would be, mm-hmm. that's where you'd go to be cool, and everyone would say hi to each other, and yeah. there would be community.
2: Yeah, that's right. And there were fewer, uh, you know, because you couldn't get around as far. A lot of your... Um, a lot of the of of the people you relied on to help out with stuff were just much closer by, and mm-hmm. so getting to know your neighbors was a matter of uh, necessity as well because you're yeah. going to need to rely on them. Yeah. That's right.
0: I think we all know what multi multitasking is, but in your article, you talk about multiplacing. What is that?
2: Multiplacing is I just made that word up. I like it though. <laughs> I like made up words, and it's just getting at the idea that uh, the technology that we have today so often can deceive us into at least acting like it's possible for us to live two places at once to live far away in the distant land wherever we're looking on the internet sure and to live at home but as we probably all have experience we probably all have experience with somebody who who uh it seems like their phone is glued to their hand and they're in a social setting and every every 30 seconds every minute they're looking down at their phone the thumb is scrolling and uh, you know that they're just their laughter's gone on a- autopilot, and, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. and uh uh <laughs> the, the, the there there's an illusion there of, and you know I can see myself in that spot too. I've done the very same thing, and what's what's going on there? One thing that's going on is believing, uh, de- deceiving myself into thinking that I can be here in this world of my phone, while also being here with my kids, here with my family, here with my neighbors, here with my small group. And the reality is when you try to live two places at once, you just don't end up living anywhere very well.
0: Mm -hmm. Scott Hubbard is my guest. You can learn more about Scott at DesiringGod.org. Scott, let me read Acts 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place.
2: Yeah, so... That's just a fact of creation. One thing God does when he makes us is he makes a place for us to be. See that in the very beginning with God putting Adam and Eve in the garden? And a similar thing is true, as Paul says to the Athenians there in Acts 17, that he chooses the boundaries of our dwelling place. And that word boundaries is interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the technology that we have today, and I don't want to come across as being a downer on technology, um, but they're just things that uh, unique dangers, unique threats that it also brings into our lives along with all of the amazing things that it does. And one of the things that it does is makes us feel like we live a boundaryless life, like there aren't fences around our around the place where we live or around our bodies and that we can uh, in some sense no longer be the finite, very limited, small people that we are. And uh, we, can, we can start to reach toward infinity by uh, going beyond the boundaries of our dwelling place and the place that God put us to be. But the reality is that even though our technology has changed so, 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 so much over these thousands of years, um, we as humans haven't changed at all. I know. We still have the very same capacity for attention and the very same amount of energy and the very same bandwidth to love people. And so when we start to give that attention and energy and bandwidth increasingly to our technology then it's it's just a very limited amount left for home
0: yeah. yeah there's a problem of possibly amusing ourselves on the internet to a point where we are no longer thinking as critically and deeply as we once did yeah and again i'm not Absolutely. bashing uh, technology i love it
2: yeah i do too i mean we're here we are talking on microphones and people can hear us through airwaves. I mean, on their smartphones as they <laughs> yeah. drive
0: and they're listening to us yeah. now. So yeah, that's praise right. technology, right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Very yeah. thankful for technology. But uh we would be foolish to take on all this technology gleefully without also being pretty self critical about the changes that it brings into our lives. And we can't go back to a world where, you know, you Easily know all your neighbors by name, where you're required to live and work and worship in the same part of town. We're we're never going back to that world. No, we're not. But one thing we can do is just wisely consider, given the way that God made us, given the the uh, expectations that we see in Scripture for how God wants us to live, how can we wisely use this technology in a way that doesn't undermine our humanity? and undermine the mission that God has given us in the world. Mm-hmm.
0: Scott, the only place where Christians can say they they, they live in two places would be uh, Christians who are obviously born again, who understand that we do live in two places simultaneously. Say more about that.
2: Yeah, it's a striking formula that, that Apostle Paul has at the beginning of some of his letters. Um, Philippians and Colossians are maybe the clearest, but in Philippians, he introduces it, for example, by saying, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So there are two statements of the Christian's location. In one sense, they are in Christ Jesus, and in another sense, they are at Philippi. (laughs) Spiritually, (laughs) they have been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2 says. And yet physically, bodily, relationally, they still live there in Philippi. And so, yes, that is one sense in which we as Christians do indeed live two places at once. Our identity is in Christ. He is our life. We are hidden with him in heaven, Mm -hmm. and we are still here. And one of the remarkable things about that is uh, you might expect, Paul, after saying that you are in Christ Jesus, to give only a kind of otherworldly lifestyle throughout the letter of the Philippians. But remarkably, what he, what he does is he talks about how that life in Christ Jesus is meant to empower a full-orbed life in Philippi, uh, where people are, the Christians, the people who are in Christ Jesus, are bringing the life and the light of Christ all through the city and are living locally for the sake of Jesus. So even that, uh, you know, separation or that, that um, expansion of, oh, yes, I'm in Christ Jesus, and I'm also at Philippi. It, the effect of it is to focus our lives so that we bring the life of Jesus into the place where we live.
0: Fantastic. One of the uh, lines, a couple of lines from your article, and I'm talking to Scott Hubbard, is this. He said, children are instinctively loyal. Dad doesn't have to be awesome. He just needs to be theirs. Poets are relentlessly attentive. They they see marvels in the mundane. Most of us, of course, are no longer children and are not yet poets. But with God's help, we can begin cultivating the same loyal, attentive presence to the ordinary people and places all around us. Yeah. Touché. What a great great
2: line. And the, that uh, image of children and poets comes from G.K. Chesterton. There's this quote that I have in the article where he just says, if you want to understand a place, then you need... The loyalty of children and the great patience of poets.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. We'll take a little break as we're continuing our d- discussion with Scott Hubbard on practicing a lifestyle of presence. I think that's something we can all reflect upon and, and ask ourselves how we're doing in that department. We'll uh, be right back with Scott Hubbard in just a minute. I always like it when Scott Hubbard says, yes, I will be in studio to talk to you. It makes me happy. He is uh, editor at DesiringGod.org. He's written an article called Practicing a Presence of Lifestyle. Live where you live, Practicing a Presence of Lifestyle. You can read that article at DesiringGod.org. I think I said the other day, Scott, that I, I wasn't trying to be prophetic in any way, but the world is getting bigger and smaller all at the same time and in your article you say living where we are makes the world big again i'd love for you to say
2: more about that yeah one of my favorite psalms is psalm 104 where basically it's a it's a creation psalm and so the author is looking around at the world and praising god for all the things that he's made and getting specific about the heavens and the cows and the hills and the grass and the rain and One of the remarkable things about that psalm is that it was written so, so long ago before he could see, um, I mean, we can see so much more (laughs) than that psalmist could see of creation. Oh, right. We can go higher than he could into the heavens, into the space. We can go lower than he could down to the bottom of the ocean. And yet, how many of us have the same kind of amazement and childlike wonder at the world right outside our front door. Mm-hmm. And so in one sense, our world is a lot bigger than the psalmist's world. We can know what's going on right now in Russia. Mm-hmm. We can know what's going on right now on Mars in some sense. <laughs> we can go go look at what it looks like right now. Our world is humongous. But in another sense, all of that access to faraway places has made the world right outside our homes very, very small for a lot of us. For all of that... Um, Availability often we end up walking through this world with our heads down into our phone, missing the wonders right beneath Mm -hmm. our feet. And so, the psalmist didn't have the very access that we have, but what he did have were two eyes in his head and a heart that was willing to be patiently attentive to the world around him. And that made his world so big. And our world, too, could be a lot bigger if we practiced more often living where we actually live rather than trying to live somewhere else. Mm -hmm.
0: Scott said in his article, Living Where We Are Makes the World Big Again, it awakens us to the everyday wonders in our homes, neighborhoods, and churches. He said it reminds us that the most exciting and urgent matters happen not on screens, but in the successes and struggles of the ordinary brothers and sisters in our small group.
2: That's right. Well-spoken. Yeah, I mean, there can be a kind of um, because you have access. We have access on our phones to sensational things mm-hmm. all the time. We can slowly become numb or dull to the absolutely incredible things happening in the or- happening in the ordinary believer in our small group, and the <laughs> the things that are happening there, the the victories over sin. The hope that this person has in the midst of an incredibly dark season, the rejoicing in God, the repentance and turning from a pattern of destruction, those things are, I mean, if we're talking what's going to last into eternity, that's history. Like Those are the real stories in the world. And yet we can get so caught up with what's merely sensational that we can lose our wonder in that kind of thing and our the world in our small group for example or our churches has become very small and we look at these ordinary believers and see only ordinariness or look at ourselves and see only ordinariness and not something far bigger which god's word would train us to see
0: Mm -hmm. scott talk about living in concentric
2: circles yes give us a seminar on that (laughs) so uh If you just imagine a a pebble dropped into a pond and these circles spreading away from it, I think that is one helpful image for, um, given the way that God has made us as humans, thinking about what we are responsible for day-to-day, week-to-week. All of us have these concentric circles of responsibility where uh, we have relationships that are nearer to us than other relationships. And generally speaking, it is right to say that proximity heightens responsibility. So the closer that people are to you, the greater the responsibility that you have for them. You see that in various places in Scripture like Paul in 1 Timothy 5 saying that if somebody doesn't care for the members of his own household, then he is worse than an unbeliever. What's Mm. going on there? Well, the principle is that before you're obligated to care for somebody else's household, you're obligated to care for your own. That circle is closer to you than the circle elsewhere. And we could look elsewhere as, uh, for that principle too. But if you just think that the people closest to me, the relationships um, nearest and dearest to me are the ones I am most responsible for, it can cut through a lot of the confusion when it comes to how do I spend my time today? How do I spend my attention today? Because all of a sudden, if we're realizing that hours of our time and attention are going to people for whom we have little or no responsibility, namely people – Uh, on social media that we're not nearly related to, or people in faraway, you know, in news stories from faraway countries or something like that, then chances are we are being irresponsible toward the people uh, that we are supposed to be most responsible for. And so... um, One way to put it is to say that time and attention are zero-sum games, which just means the more time and attention you give uh, to faraway places, the less time and attention you have to give at home. And if you are a normal busy person, at least I'll speak for myself, the people nearest to me need all the attention that I can give them. (laughs) Like being a dad, being a husband, being a church member, being an employee – all of that is not a part-time job and where I have gobs of time and attention that I can give to other people. Like if I'm doing those things right, it's going to take 168 hours of my week. Um, I mean, including sleep in there. <laughs> it's going to take everything. So it's not like I have a ton of just discretionary time and attention. Yeah.
0: To give. Is, is that how many hours there are in a week? Right.
2: Yeah. Because I didn't <laughs> know there was
0: going to be math in this interview.
2: <laughs> I mean, I think it's been a long time since I've had a math class. I so yeah. oh, could good. be wrong there.
0: Yeah. But I think your point is uh, beautifully illustrated. You, you made it uh, personal, which I appreciate. And I know there's uh, people listening right now thinking, uh-oh, I don't know if I'm doing this right.
2: It's a constant um, recalibration for me. Okay. It just needs to be because the reality is that the way that, our, uh, the way that our society is right now, the way that our technology is right now, there is going to be the constant pull toward the far away over the near. We're going to be constantly pulled to give more and more of our time, attention, and energy to what um, uh, what one author calls distant dramas as opposed to the responsibilities that God has put right in our lap, right outside our front door at home. And yes. so for me, it just, it's like every few weeks I feel like I need to, uh, okay, hold on here. How am I spending my time? Yeah. <laughs> Why did I give all my attention here today instead of there? So
0: It's actually a good lesson for me too because you host a – a radio show and you know when I call you to come on I assume you want to come on because a you're a great guest b you've got wonderful content to share with listeners but what's not in my head is what am I asking Scott to do that's taking away from some other responsibility yeah. that's a good lesson for me
2: yeah uh, yeah it's good to have in mind that's right every time we say yes to something that is more far farther away, yeah. More outside the concentric you're saying circles. No to something you're saying no to something closer to home. Yeah. That's right. And so, if those things closer to home are not in a good spot, then saying yes farther away is probably almost always unwise. Mm-hmm.
0: So, when you talk about home, and you, you talk about this in your article that it's the most remarkable place on earth because God has placed you there, that's probably a really good line just for us to think about it for a minute. <laughs> because it's pretty spectacular to think that you were born yeah. in the century you were born in, in the place you were born in,
2: yep.
0: in the neighborhood you you live in. I mean it's it's nothing is inconsequential in God's economy. That's right. Why weren't you born in the seventeenth century on
2: some mountain in the Himalayas? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Only because God said so. He fixed the boundaries of our dwelling place. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: if we have something in our hearts that say God is amazingly good And gracious with me and this place that he has let me live in called home in this earthly home is remarkable and i stand and wonder about that
2: yeah that's right there's a kind of a disposition that i think god would have us inhabit day to day which is to say there is certainly always more to see in the place that i live than i have yet seen and i want to see more of it today i want to see more of the wonders that are right beneath my feet more Mm -hmm. of the uh, glory that is there in the images of God walking past me, yeah, Scott.
0: I have a tendency of looking through the obituaries about every week where i 'll sit down and read all mm-hmm. of them and mm-hmm. just because they 're basically a person 's life story in a couple of paragraphs, yeah, so i 'm always curious as to how they 've summarized their life, and some of my favorites are, yeah, he had this job, but you know what he really cared about was you know afternoons playing catch with his son and not missing a uh, any game or any recital yeah and the countless uh, weekends at the lake where they fished and they sat around the campfire and they talked about God and you think, I I don't know how much money that guy made. It doesn't matter. That's right. He hit it out of the park. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was living where God had placed him and doing what God uh, put on his heart to do.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Good for me to hear too.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. So um, Scott Hubbard is my guest and we're talking about uh, live where you live, practicing a lifestyle of presence. All of Scott's articles are up at desiringgod.org. org. You can always head over there and just type his name into the search engine, or you can type in this article because we have talked about uh, things. If you want to refer back to it, they're all they're all here in this article. And it, when you uh, talk about um, people feeling like they're displaced or they're they don't feel settled, have they lost touch with? What God is doing and done in their life, or is that kind of a, a natural wonderlust that people have?
2: Well, it's uh, I think natural in terms of natural to our fallen state. Okay, uh, I doubt it will be natural in heaven. All oh, right, right. <laughs> in the new heaven and new earth. But for 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 this life, yes, I don't think we can. You know always expect to live in a in a in a state of perpetual wonder and amazement no be uh this, exhausting this world has fallen we are yeah. fallen yeah and um many days are gonna feel remarkably normal but I do think that there is um it may it may suggest something something more more deeply off if that uh, sense of disillusionment or mundaneness is leading us to live more and more and more of life farther away if instead of pressing in and being faithful and enduring in the place where God has us and asking him for open eyes then uh, we're but we 're actually you know just traveling farther and farther away on our phones on our TVs et etc yep. I think that 's a real indication of something off
0: great reminder once again you 've uh, you 've given us a lot to think about and you have made us evaluate our priorities and how we're living our days and that was uh, all very helpful I'm speaking at, right now for me so thanks Scott.
2: Yeah, very glad to be here. Yeah,
0: Scott Hubbard is an editor for Desiring God. He's also a pastor at All People's Church. He's a graduate of Bethlehem College and Seminary and his wife uh, lives with his two sons right here in Minneapolis. Always glad to see him. Alright, we'll take a little break and hour two is just ahead.